James, there is a lot to worry about when you're planning a wedding. There are logistics that have to do with clothes, with flowers, with food, with all of those things. And one thing you don't want to have to worry about is your feminine care. And that's where Lola comes in. Lola is a female-founded company offering a line of organic cotton tampons, pads, and liners. They started their company with a simple and seemingly obvious idea. Women shouldn't have to compromise when it comes to feminine care products. I love that it's been founded by women for women. They offer pads and liners as well as non-applicator tampons for those looking for a more environmentally friendly option. Lola's products are 100% organic cotton with no added chemicals, fragrances, synthetics or dyes and they make your month a little bit easier. Their subscription is fully customizable so you can choose your mix of products, your perfect mix of absorbency, your number of boxes and frequency of delivery. And James, let me tell you, as a woman who menstruates and as a woman who uses Lola, Lola's totally changed my life. I'm not running off in the middle of the night to the corner store to get feminine care because this is coming straight to my door. And when Megan has Lola, she won't have to do that either. She's not going to have to leave Kensington to go off on the main street and try and find some tampons in the middle of the night. And because we love you, we've sorted 40% off your first order. Visit mylola.com and enter promo code MARRY when you subscribe. That's promo code MARRY at mylola.com for 40% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. She stepped back and pointed at her chest with two fingers and said, Bomba, done. Like, hey, just so you know, the bomb's right behind you. And I'm like, oh, I'm standing on a bomb right now. It's a shit show, you know? Suddenly you're in combat. So all of a sudden, the <laughs> grenades are flying at us. I'm like, what? And we go to the vehicle, and like my seat was just gone. I would have, at a minimum, lost my legs and probably lost more. He's like, good thing you weren't in the vehicle, sir. You just die when you're in a war zone. However you've lived your life up to that point is going to come out. And it's best not to have any skeletons, you know. called home. I told her what happened. I told her I could have been killed. And she said, I hope you stay in Iraq as long as you can. I'm not ready for you to come home. That sucks. Many of us live our lives blissfully ignorant of how close we sometimes come to death. Every time you've slipped down a flight of stairs but caught yourself just before you broke your neck, or when you've stepped off a curb and nearly got hit by a car running a light. Or, for those of us in Los Angeles, anytime we're on the 405 freeway going anywhere. The moment happens, you get a chill through your body, you probably curse someone, and then you go about your day. You forget it. Combat veterans don't have a choice, however. The thought is always lingering on our minds. I am intimately aware of how close I've come to death. Millimeters, to be exact. My good friend Arnold Strong found himself in Iraq, standing on a massive booby-trapped explosive. And when you're literally standing on a bomb, 
It'll make you think about your choices in life. He certainly did. And it forced him to make some real changes. Big changes. You have that moment of cognitive dissonance of just like, oh, at any moment you could just die. And so whatever bones you got in your closet, whatever stuff, the way you've lived your life, you better be comfortable with it because in this place you could possibly die. This is Battle Scars, and I'm Tom Tran. I served in the U.S. Army, deployed to Iraq, and took a sniper's bullet to the back of my head my fourth day in country. It's been over a decade since that gunfight, and I've told that story hundreds of times. There's still things about my life in combat that I haven't shared with anyone. And in this show, I talk to other veterans of our recent wars and maybe put into words some of those things that we've never said about those experiences. Give me a good level. Level one, two, three, four, one, two, one, two. That's All good. good. That's good. Recording this episode of Battle Scars was a little different than previous episodes. I'd asked my friend Colonel Arnold Strong to drop by and tell me about one specific event during a tour in Iraq. This one infantry battalion of the Oregon National Guard, the 2nd Battalion, 162nd Infantry, they were in the middle of the fight, Fallujah 1, they were there 0405. After their ninth casualty and having sent over 32 of their members home, I basically volunteered to join the battalion for their last six months of their deployment. And so, you know, I was this rear headquarters guy that suddenly joined these flat-bellied, steely-eyed killers in combat and uh, in the thick of it. He was a citizen soldier then. A National Guardsman, to be exact. He had a safe desk job, but then he volunteered to put himself in harm's way and go, literally, onto the streets of Iraq. This company was actually the quick reaction force for the division. Basically, the guys that are going to go at a moment's notice, ready to deal mayhem and get the bad guys and save the good guys. After we turned off the microphones, we kept chatting. And that is when the no bullshit came out. The mission where he was nearly blown up made him really face the demons of his life, the choices that he'd made, and the later decisions that it led to. His dance with death prompted him to make some very painful decisions about how to live out the rest of his life. And it wasn't without serious repercussions. There was a lot of honesty and a lot of crying when we talked. And then Arnold went home. Months later, after he completely retired from the army, he agreed to tell his full story on tape. That decision only increased my admiration for this man. So let's go back to the beginning and the first recording session. So we got this report that remnants from the first Gulf War, including unexploded American howitzer rounds, mortar rounds, claymore mines, etc., had been used to allegedly mine this new soccer field that was going to open. And so we got this mission to go find, fix, and destroy this unexploded ordinance on site because, A, we want to destroy it so that these kids don't get killed, and B, we want to make sure that we destroy it because it's American ordinance and we don't want them to get the propaganda goal of, see these terrible Americans, look what they're doing, they're killing our children, let's, you know, rally against them. And when we talk about the soccer field... As most Americans, yeah. like I think, soccer field, big, 
big outdoor soccer field. Was it like that, or was it more of a uh, local neighborhood? Local neighborhood dirt field with chalk lines and really rickety looking bleachers and some crazy cartoons. I think there was like a something that could have been Tom and Jerry, something that could have been, you know, Mickey Mouse. I, I don't know. Tim but, you know, and just, Terry. <laughs> Tim and Terry. Like the, yeah. The and slightly jo- off copyrighted version. <laughs> right. So, yeah. so we got up at like three o'clock in the morning. We had to go to one side of Baghdad to pick up our EOD guys, the bomb disposal guys. The guys in the big suits that they made that movie. Big suits that made that terrible movie. <sighs> I uh, watched that movie with some EOD guys who literally got up and went, fuck this. And they just walked out of the theater. Yeah. Although there's that one scene that every single veteran says, oh, they got that right. When he's standing in the supermarket aisle aisle, looking at the cereal, it's like, fuck this. I'm going back to a war zone where shit makes sense. That is that everyone says, oh, they got that part right. Yeah. That is the one scene where I was like, too many choices, too many colors. The world should be black and white. Like it was over in Iraq. So, uh, so you went out and got the EOD so yeah. Guys. So we so we pick up the EOD guys. We show up on site. We literally were looking at these houses that surrounded the soccer field, and we were doing that charm initiative, you know, to go door to door and talk to these people. And you know, I mean, typical Iraqi housing where there's a big wall around the garden area. Behind. So the light brown adobe colored, yeah, made of mud and yeah. brick like all yeah. Iraqi houses were. Yeah. We had these soccer balls that had the first cav patch on the logo. And then in Arabic, it said, remember to vote. Iraq is now free. You know, winning hearts and minds saying, hey, look, you got an election coming up here in a month. This is what you were, did this for. This is how you no longer have Saddam in power. It's time for you guys to get out and vote. So we were we were talking to this uh, this family, this older Iraqi woman who was you know probably in her mid forties, but you know looked like she was sixty. Opened up the uh, gate and she had her daughter or granddaughter, and was pushing her forward with two handfuls of tangerines. Little girl, how old? She's probably six, seven. Beautiful, you know, just this sweet-hearted girl who was like really emboldened by her mom to not be afraid of the soldiers that look like the Terminator because we're wearing body armor and helmets and protective eyewear and gloves and we have weapons. And I broke all those protocols, of course. I took off my helmet and <laughs> got down on my knees, you know, to accept the gift of these tangerines with this uh, this girl and her brother. I did what every comedic-spirited guy that knows how to juggle do. I thought, ooh, I'll just charm these kids with juggling tangerines. And that then brought like this whole dozen kids out of the neighborhood to see like the American clown. Um, who's Great. Suddenly... That's what we want to be known as, the American clown. <laughs> I've been called worse, um, usually by you. And I'm juggling away and they're laughing and, you know, chittering, chattering and, you know, having a great time. And I said, grab one of those soccer balls. And so I gave the soccer ball that was branded, you know, with the whole Remember to Vote campaign to the daughter because she was the one who gave me the tangerines. As soon as I gave it to her, her brother stole it from her and like lifted his hand like to threaten hitting her. And I just grabbed this little shit by the back of the collar. How old's the brother? He's like maybe 10, 11. So just a little older. And I just yelled out, la! You know, it's like, no! And he got, of course, terrified. And I made a hand gesture, a head gesture to give it back to his sister. And that was a big deal for mom. 
because like the daughter's getting stood up for and that's not a normal thing. Right. And that's when everything happened. That's when, you know, she stepped inside the compound. You know, I'm a basic Arab linguist. It was Egyptian Arabic, so it's very different dialectically from Iraqi Arabic. But in Arabic, and then with her hand, she tapped her chest to identify herself. She pointed her eyes and then said, Bomba, da, the bomb is right there. And I just like <laughs> looked at her like, what do you mean it's right here? Where your and foot I, is, stupid, right yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm surrounded by like yeah. a dozen children. And I'm like, oh, I'm standing on a bomb right now. You know, I know how to whistle. And I, you know, blew, blew a long mouth whistle to get these guys' attention and say, yeah, I think I found it. And he came over and he said, what's up, sir? I said, I think the bomb's right here. And he says, well, what makes you so smart on that, sir? I said, because the lady said it's right here. <laughs> and, uh, wait, be- wait. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell makes you think of that? I'm <laughs> the EOD guy. And we found it, and it was right there. It was right this big rubbled pile of dirt and broken cement that was right at the gate of the thing. It was uh, two 105 millimeter howitzer rounds. And about 105 is about how big? It looks like a gigantic bullet, about two feet long. So a couple of those, um, a couple of uh, 82 millimeter mortar rounds, and a claymore was in the rigging up above to like blow down okay. onto these kids. Were they remote detonated? They were going to be remote detonated. Okay, yes, so- as horrific as this sounds, the goal was to have all these kids running onto their first game of the soccer field through this open gate, blow it, kill all these children and their parents with unexploded American ordinance and say, look at these terrible Americans, what they're doing to our country. Notice this, this is US ordinance. So we found the uh, munitions, we destroyed the munitions, we rigged it so that they blow deep into the ground, blew a huge hole in the earth. And the mom, she came back and hollered at me because one of her windows broke. And uh, <laughs> and so I made sure that we promised, I got the civil affairs so guy. The, I was gonna I say, got the civil affairs guy. Bakshish, bakshish, you know, get a little bit of uh, payoff here. But that, in essence, is how juggling can save your life in Iraq and how juggling can save the life of like a dozen kids in Iraq. And so uh, after that, we all played soccer in the in the field with the soccer ball. And, uh, and you know, it's one of those small times where you know you made a difference, you know, where you know that like, oh, these kids didn't die and America didn't get blamed for something we didn't do. And today was a good day. So I'm hopeful and prayerful that uh, those kids are now 12 years older. They're in their 20s. They're married. They're having great jobs. They're thriving in Baghdad. They're not part of the insurgency. They're all happy and think America's great. Now let's talk about this that just popped into my head. I've been there. I, I I understand how trepidatious they are to talk to us. They don't really trust us. They also don't trust the insurgents who, if they see them talking to us, but her child could have run through that. And she hmm. knew where the IED was. Like, what? Yeah, well, I mean, what what is the goal of terrorism? To inspire terror. Right. That's an example of that, you know, it's like, if you think it's bad thinking about your child dying, just imagine what we're going to do to you if you let the Americans know. I mean, she had a little bit of that trepidation, a little bit of that hesitation. She's inside a stone walled garden compound in front of her home with a big steel wall door. Um, She stepped three steps back. Because She know, wanted to make sure nobody else Nobody saw else her. saw her, exactly. So she was not the one. I just randomly happened to find it and randomly happened to destroy it. And right. Hopefully she's safe. Um, but I don't 
don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole because then you think, or something bad could have happened. And I don't know. I just, I, I just know that in that instance, at that moment, I made a difference. I mean, you remember this. It's like so much of that just gets buried deep down inside you at the time. You're just, it's what a lot of veterans, I think, miss the most. You only have this second and this second alone that you're living in and you're not thinking about tomorrow. You're not thinking about the past. It's right now and right now alone. So you better do your best right now and make a difference because you could die. And so you better have all your effects in place. And it doesn't mean just the paperwork. It means like whatever bones you got in your closet, you know, whatever stuff, the way you've lived your life, you better be comfortable with it because in this place you could possibly die. And as you might have guessed, that when Arnold was standing on that bomb in the middle of a country full of bombs, he started to think that there might be some things about the way he'd lived his life up to that point that didn't sit comfortably with him. We'll hear about that in a moment. Before I get back to Arnold's story, I want to talk a little bit about another podcast, Intelligence Squared. If you heard me talking to Senator Tammy Duckworth, a fellow combat veteran and Purple Heart recipient on a recent episode of Battle Scars, you know that I get pretty heated about the polarization of our nation and our politics. Well, the mission of Intelligence Squared is to address this fundamental problem. The show wants to restore facts, reason, and civility to public debate by bringing together opposing perspectives on one stage for a proper debate. And they invite thoughtful people from across the spectrum to talk about politics, science, and healthcare. Speakers like David Petraeus, Malcolm Gladwell, Ariane Huffington, Carl Rove, and Laura Ingram. So for some civil debate that might change your mind on the serious issues, subscribe to IQ2 US podcast today for access to more than 100 debates and visit iq2us.org to cast your vote on the topics. Now, back to Battle Scars. When you work in a public affairs capacity like Arnold and I have, you have to put on the public face. The juggling story was Arnold's public face. He was still in the army at the time, and he wanted to make sure that he represented his uniform and his military well, as many of us do. And that's what the story does. It tells that narrative about winning hearts and minds. He couldn't tell me the real story, because even though he was on terminal leave, he was still a commissioned officer in the U.S. Army. We have a different set of rules in the military. Literally. The Uniform Code of Military Justice is a rule book that dictates not only how we act on duty, but how we live our lives. And there are simply things that you can't talk about. Last summer, Arnold retired. So I called him up and I asked him if he was ready to sit down with me again and tell me the story that really shaped him. I should probably uh, turn the phone off, yeah? Uh, yeah, it put ring. it on airplane you... mode or whatever. Yeah. Did you ever hear the story about how I got tricked in getting engaged while I was in Iraq? No. <laughs> no, that's good. <laughs> so before I deployed... I kind of went and made my peace with a girl who, who I hurt mm -hmm. because the year before Iraq, Afghanistan happened. Right. And I went to Operation Bright Star in Egypt, which is a hop, skip, and a jump away from Afghanistan. Yep. I broke it off with her 
because I was very, very convinced that I wasn't coming home. And I didn't want that on my conscience. And then a year later, Iraq happens. And I went to apologize to her for what had happened. <laughs> and um, they wouldn't let anybody come see us while we were getting ready to deploy unless they right. were family, husbands, right. wives, fathers, whatever. And she wasn't do, unless do, do. she's a fiance. <laughs> so she bought herself a fake engagement ring, told the unit we were engaged, and they let her come to Fort Bragg to see me. Well, now she's talking to wives and girlfriends in the family readiness group, and all of a sudden she is Sergeant Tran's fiance. Hmm. And, uh, and we got to run with the lie. Yeah. We got, we, we got to run with it because fucking now it goes up to command that, hey, Sergeant Tran's engaged. Even though when we got to brag, I said to all my soldiers, because I was in E6, I said, hey, when we go back on leave, nobody fucking come back married or engaged yeah. or pregnant. Right. And they would come back and I'm fucking engaged. Yeah. Nobody knew that it was a lie because we were looking at like trying to get separation pay and all that shit, like getting married. Yeah. So we were like, well, this is going to happen. We're just fucking... Yeah. Get married, get the separation pay. Right. And then you're defrauding the government. Yeah. We didn't do that. Yeah. We eventually wound up not getting married because after I came home from Iraq, everything broke down. And I mean, that was, I lived a lie for a year. Yeah. Right. With this woman. Hmm. And military relationships in general are not always on the most stable ground when you're off fighting a war. And yeah. that relationship was based on on a fucking lie. Right. But literally until this moment, yeah. I have not told anybody that. Yeah, I was going to say it's a hell of a setup, man. You uh I could tell you were opening up a lot of stuff. I who cuz right. Who would I have told that to? I couldn't fucking tell it to my yeah. platoon sergeant or my commander. Yeah, right. And at the up until this point, there's been no reason to ever tell anybody that. Right. Yeah. That's the shit that happens. Yeah. But we don't talk about it. We can't talk about it. Yeah. And and when you left last time, mm -hmm. the story you told about the juggling with the soccer balls and, and saving the kids from from the, the explosives, right. yeah. it's great for us PAOs to get out to the world mm -hmm. to tell that story. But we've heard that story mm -hmm. in different iterations thousands of times. But what we didn't hear was what you told us when the mics went off. Mm. How that really affected you and one of the reasons of course we couldn't talk about it before was because you were still in the army yeah 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 so i would like us if you are okay with it to, yeah. to tell that story yeah it's a hell of a setup man it's like hey i just told my story i haven't told anybody you can tell yours now <laughs> <laughs> wasn't intentional didn't mean to do it like that i mean I, I mentioned you know when we went through this before i had gotten out of the army as a captain um in 2000 and I'd moved to Portland, Oregon, and I was working as, uh, that was dot-com heyday, you know, and I was working for a PR agency and then an advertising agency, and then 9-11 and then happened, and, you know, it was like the world broke, and it was like, wait a minute, why am I not in uniform anymore? But during the time that I was out of the Army, I had a, you know, a you know, you'd call it an indiscretion, you'd call it an affair. Um, it was short-lived, but it was, 
you know, it was a mistake. And I, and, and I concealed that, and I, and I held on to that for a long time. And, you know, I thought that was, that was cool and that was fine. I'm going to never concede and never confide that. Um, Admit nothing, deny everything. Yeah, right. Now, the reason Arnold couldn't talk about this before was because under the Uniform Code of Military Justice, or UCMJ, adultery is a punishable crime. Not the act of adultery itself, but under Article 134, or the general article, conduct that brings discredit to the military is punishable by UCMJ. An adultery is such conduct. To be exact, there are three elements that have to be met for the crime of adultery under UCMJ. First, a soldier must have had sexual intercourse with someone. Kind of a no-duh thing. Second, the soldier or their sexual partner was married to someone else at the time. And third, that under the circumstances, the conduct of the soldier was to the prejudice of good order and discipline or would bring discredit upon the armed forces. And UCMJ is a federal law. It's the boogeyman of all service members. So in any case, I'm home over the Christmas holiday. and um, Did the soccer thing happen already? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that had already happened. So I'd sort of come back with some interesting experiences that I'd been on like a couple patrols a day for a month. And, and so I came home, and it was the Christmas holiday. I was in Salem, Oregon, and this gal that I had, you know, years previously had a short relationship with, um, had invited my wife and I to a Christmas party. And I saw the email, and uh, my ex-wife now uh, looked over my shoulder and said, did you ever fuck her? And um, uh, what, I, what, what I said was, it's important to explain it. Um, you know, I just come back from being in Iraq where like before I went um, our head of person she's our, I'm a retired colonel now and here's this uh, our head of personnel was a colonel the G1 um, he was six weeks shy of retirement when uh, uh, his son Eric McCray was killed he was a second lieutenant and newlywed killed with his gunner and his driver and his assistant gunner and um and I was you know I sort of helped him and his wife through that process and his brother was a captain in the guard too so it was sort of a heavy military family loss and Scott McRae Colonel McRae said hey Arnold um would you take photos of where Eric was killed when you're over there for me I just want to know where he died. And I was like, yeah, of course, sir, no problem. And then, like, one of the other officers found out about that, and so they asked if I would do the same thing for this. And we, we lost nine guys in this battalion. And so I, I, I sort of made that my mission in that first month. That was one of the things I did, was I was taking photos of where these guys had been killed. And I just realized that, like, you know, you just die. You know, you just you just die when you're in a war zone, and however you've lived your life up to that point is gonna come out. And it's best not to have any skeletons, you know. And I I felt like I just documented this entire 
process and so my ex looked at me and just said did you ever fuck her i looked over my shoulder and i said yes six times over a period of two and a half months it was a total mistake and it happened three years ago and i'm sorry and she left <laughs> she just like walked out i had two boys I was getting ready to go back to war in five days. And I'm like, what the fuck? And I sort of, I literally sort of went crazy. I didn't know what to do, you know. Um, it made for just a really shitty way to return to a war zone, you know. It's like, no matter that it had happened in the past, it it happened and I was as honest as, you know, I could be in that moment and she justifiably, you know, said, hey, this is it, I'm done. And so, um, so I went with a very heavy heart, you know, because I knew that I was sort of ready to die. So Arnold goes back to Iraq. His marriage is disintegrating and he was back in a war zone. He was fighting with a battalion in Mahmoudia and they were being attacked Every day, like clockwork, vehicles were getting blown up. The irony is lost on no one that while his unit was being blown up every day, his marriage was imploding. So Valentine's Day, we're doing these knock and talks, waking people up, and uh, we finished, and my vehicle was up on this berm, and uh, we called it forward. I was walking with the platoon leader, the second lieutenant, um, and, uh, and as we watched the vehicle got hit, <laughs> this kid was up on the gun. He was a good soldier, but he just like, he immediately reacted the way a natural response would be with an Mark 19 gunner. He's going to blow up the bad guys, yeah. but there aren't only bad guys. It's just us and these right pitters. So all of a sudden the <laughs> grenades are flying at yeah. us. I'm like, fuck. And so we get down face first in the mud. But we're like, Jesus, we're almost like fragged by this overzealous specialist. And like an E4 mafia, <laughs> god damn it. <laughs> yeah. And then so we uh, we go up and uh, the squad leader said, hey, Major Strong, come take a look, sir. And we go to the vehicle and I always rode behind the truck commander. And like my seat was just gone. I mean, like there's this massive hole in the floor. The seat was half blown up and like I would have... At a minimum, lost my legs, you know, and probably lost more. And um, he's like, good thing you weren't in the vehicle, sir. <laughs> no shits, much less. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, thanks. Thanks, sir. Appreciate it. You balance that with the other stuff I told you about, where it's like I'm thinking, oh, you know, when you fuck up your marriage, you just want to be forgiven. You just want to, like, make things right. You just want to, like, you know, have something. That night at dinner, I, I, I took, I never took the opportunity to make a call home. On the phone for myself and I, I called home and she was still justifiably very angry at me I told her what happened and I told her you know, I could have been killed and she said I hope you stay in Iraq as long as you can I am not ready for you to come home and I thought well, that sucks yeah you know I don't deserve that I don't deserve to die and um I don't know she didn't mean that. It was just a mean thing to say because that's 
when you get hurt like that, you're just trying to hurt somebody back. I know that she didn't believe that. I know that. And I know that. I mean, I do know that. I've gone to therapy with her since about that. And and she, you know, apologized and knew that it was a hurtful thing. But boy, man, when you're in a war zone, it's like that just like took the wind out of my sails. And I, I had this temptation to go into like self-pity. And, um, and then I realized, but that's bullshit. You're a fucking field grade officer. It's like, and the guys, and it's like, it's Valentine's Day. And these guys are away from their wives and their fiancés and their girlfriends and their moms and their sisters. And so I just like fired myself up on coffee and was walking along the Euphrates River to all these little uh, posts where the guys were. And I'd say, are you married? Fuck no, sir. <laughs> you got a girlfriend? No. You got a mom? Well, I fucking, of course I have a mom, sir. Why don't you call her for Valentine's Day? What's her number? And they'd be like, are you fucking serious? I'm like, yeah. And so I just went, like, and I just, like, would set it up, and I'd just give them the phone, and I'd walk away. By and the like, way, those fucking sat calls are not cheap. Those <laughs> motherfuckers are expensive. Super expensive. Super I was serious. I figured, fuck it, you know? My, well, I will say that my boss, before he left, he was a colonel at the time. He retired as a general. He said, look, National Guard headquarters is paying for this cocksucker, so <laughs> use it as much as you need to. For whatever reason you need to, just get it out there. I was like, great, I'm going to make calls with the guys. And so I spent like the next three hours just walking. Uh, and $300,000. Know, <laughs> fucking very expensive <laughs> phone calls on the government dime. But like, you know, it like made everyone's day because like they were able to call their wives and their sisters and their girlfriends and their moms. And and that like made me, you know, feel like it made a difference and made it easier. So uh you're trying to fix it. Yeah. You know, whatever make, way you could. Yeah. If you it know, wasn't... make it better for somebody else if I couldn't make it better for me. And so, but yeah, that was a, that was a long chapter. Arnold and his wife eventually divorced. They're on good terms now. And when Arnold retired from the military last summer, she was right there with him. Ten years later, the scars have had a little bit of time to heal. I saw her at the retirement party. Yeah, right. Exactly. She's a good person. You know, it's like and then and she came see me do stand up at the laugh. Exactly. Factory. Right. And saw you laugh, and she laughed her ass off, and that was good. It was a good healing there because she's heard stories about you forever. And I and I and I get to balance that with the fact that I'm I'm finally open to being loved again, and I've got like the love of my life in my life. You know, my old high school girlfriend came back in my life when I came back to L.A., and that's like, you know, the biggest healing imaginable. You know, I feel like, you know, every day is like better than yesterday. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that if not for the fact that you had to go and take photos of the places that your friends' sons died in Iraq and you weren't faced with constant death all the time, had your wife seen that email, maybe in a different place, in another space in your mind, you would have been like, no. Yeah. It was a crisis of consciousness. It was like, I'm carrying something I don't need to carry, and I'm going to be honest, because like, I don't want to you know, be you know, less than honest. And I, if you, you don't, don't want, want to, die. you don't want to die with that on your conscience. Yeah. And, uh, and so I carried that long enough and, um, and then I carried the consequences of it long enough. And I'm glad that I'm able to move past that. There are a few reasons that I encourage Arnold to tell this story. I'd actually met his ex-wife several years ago 
at Arnold's change of command ceremony. And as far as I knew, they were a happy Army family. They were there to support him as he was promoted and left for a new command. Then Arnold was gone for a couple years, and when he retired, he moved back to Los Angeles. He had a new lady on his arm. And I'd seen the pictures, and then eventually I'd met her, and she is a lovely woman. But I never asked Arnold what had happened. Even as his friend, and as a fellow soldier, I didn't want to get into that part of his life, because I knew, under UCMJ, maybe it's not a thing we talk about. Maybe it's a thing that we acknowledge, accept, and don't discuss. And that was the problem. We as soldiers and service members, we train, we fight, we die next to each other. We're brothers and sisters, yet sometimes we don't know the story behind some of the most important parts of each other's lives because we can't ask, or we're ashamed to ask, or we don't want someone else to feel ashamed that we asked. But we know that it happened. We hear the rumors. We see the end results. But we don't know why. Yeah, sometimes we're just shitty 20-year-olds who shouldn't have gotten married in the first place. And sometimes it takes stepping on a bomb to make you face the skeletons in your closet. But we don't know. And we don't ask. So we don't tell. We keep that shit inside and it burns. It burns from the inside out. And those secrets and the shame, they don't just burn the person holding them in. They burn everyone around them. And it creates a cycle of pain that we just continue to not talk about. And I think having Arnold tell that story, maybe we help someone break their cycle. Maybe by putting this out in the open, the shame doesn't burn someone else. And we can break the cycle for good. Or at the very least, someone can step up and tell their story too. Thanks for listening to Battle Scars. Battle Scars is a Panoply podcast produced by Ryan Dilly, Shara Morris, and AC Valdez. Our theme music is composed by Daniel Dandi. The artwork by Jesse Brown. Special thanks to Andy Bowers, Panoply's chief content officer. I'm your host, Tom Tran. If you like the show, review us or rate us or just tell someone about us. And to quote Ferris Bueller, you're still here? It's over. Go home.